welcome back to the NASPA Leadership Podcast. We're so excited that you um, have joined us. I'm really hoping um, that you all enjoyed our last episode with Darren and Natasha. Um, I have talked about it like four times since we recorded it and sent people <laughs> to it. Um, just thinking of even if you're not working in STEM field or with STEM students, just um, the things and learning from them about um, just ways of knowing and sharing and engaging and um yeah, so I'm hoping that folks enjoyed it as much as I know you and I did, Mel. Um, but excited to be back with another episode. We have a really exciting um, topic and group of scholars joining us today that I want to make sure I give Mel space to introduce introduce them. So, Mel, who do we have today, and why do we invite this group with us today? Yeah, so on today's episode, we're speaking with Dr. Amy Barnes, who is a clinical associate professor at the Ohio State University. Dr. Jordan Harper, Assistant Professor at Morgan State University, and Dr. Esty Hernandez, Assistant Professor at National Lewis University. Um, and our topic today is all about the philosophy and practice of co-construction in the design and delivery of leadership education experiences. Um, all three of these folks are our scholars, our featured scholars in residence for the upcoming Leadership Educators Symposium um, on December 13th and 15th at the University of Tampa. And why Honestly, why we wanted to bring them onto the podcast today is because I, I just think that this topic of co-constructing um, learning experiences is something that isn't totally foreign to leadership educators, but we don't always talk about it as like liberatory mm -hmm. practice, and it really is. And so I think it's important for all of us, whether we're teaching in a classroom, facilitating workshops, designing you know, leadership series, whatever it might, or even advising students around their own leadership development. I think it's important for us to realize that this notion of sharing power and, and honoring lived experience and not be, not having to be the authority on leadership in the room is just such mm -hmm. an important, it's an important lesson for all of us. It's one that I know a lot of our listeners embrace already, uh, but knowing just kind of what is the kind of the strategy around that and where does that idea of co-construction come from and how does it connect to this idea of liberation? Um, I just think that is such an enriching conversation. And these three scholars, and I'm calling them scholars, right? Because that's what we're calling them um, mm -hmm. for a symposium, but they they have rich practitioner backgrounds as well. Um, these three are just, gosh, they have so much wonderful, so many wonderful things to share. Um, and I think this little teaser um, about, about their work and, and the idea of co-construction is going to be really great for our conversation today. Well, and I'm situating within the, the, um, series, uh, and the season's theme of context, right. And I, I know, um, that that might not be as prevalent as it was in our first episode, because we were specifically talking about some context all the time, but right. thinking about the process of co-construction is all undergird and understand your context, right. Because the yes. way that we co-construct this podcast together is different than how I co-construct my classroom experiences, different than how I co-construct a staff meeting, um, or even just conversations with loved ones, right? Like that co-construction in the context is so dependent on when and if it's appropriate, how much is appropriate, how do you actually engage in it, what's the pedagogies you use or the practices or innovations. Um, so that context use is just so important and really undergirds um, a lot of the conversation I know that you all have been having around co-construction and just understanding the environments and the spaces you're in and who's who's there with you um, to be able to engage in that co-construction journey. So I think this context piece will be a good um maybe it's a more philosophical understanding, right? Of like, what is yeah. context and how do we use it? And um, how do we use it in our favor, right? To really be able to lean in um, to good learning spaces. So I am just so excited that you've got this team here and that we can, we can learn from them in this episode. Right on. 
All right, everyone. Uh, I'm so excited to have Amy and Jordan and Esty here with us. I get to chat with these folks quite a bit um, because of their role with the Leadership Educator Symposium. So to have them here and, and get, get you all kind of introduced to them and, and hear a little bit of their brilliance today is really so special. I'm so pumped. So um, for the three of you, if you wouldn't mind um, just doing your intro, share with us who you are and your pronouns, your role and your work, maybe a little bit about how you're a leadership educator, maybe how you got into that mm -hmm. aspect of your kind of professional identity. Um, Amy, do you want to start? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Amy Barnes. I use she, her pronouns. I'm currently a clinical associate professor in um, HESA, higher education and student affairs at Ohio State University. I also direct our EDD program. Um, I teach now mostly doctoral courses um, in leadership and strategy and research courses for EDD students. Um, however, from 2005-ish to 2022, I taught a lot of undergraduate leadership courses through our um, leadership minor at Ohio State. Um, so that was my primary space for a really, really long time. Um, the ways in which I think of myself as a leadership educator, it's a funny question because um, recently I, I have teenagers and they have started telling me that I need to stop bringing my work home as I try to teach them life lessons because <laughs> they think I wear my leadership hat when I'm, you know, trying to teach them to be good people and good humans. And I tell them, um, you know what, it's actually like kind of the same thing. <laughs> um, yeah, parenting and leadership education, parents and leadership education are not that different. Um, so, you know, I've been doing this work for so long now that I think, um, it's just become part of my worldview. Um, I think a lot about, um, leadership dynamics, the complexities of leadership, critical leadership. You know, I try to advocate for equitable spaces in leadership. And I know a lot of it for me is just that like there's a never ending learning process for me um, as a leadership educator. Uh, it's constant, you know, the unlearning, the relearning. Um, there's always something new to think about or discover. Um, and I love that part of it. And so, um, you know, I love this identity in that way, because I feel like it just I completely bettering myself through the work that I get to do every day. And it's it's a lot of fun. So I'll leave it at that. I love that. Uh, yeah. So interesting to think about mm -hmm. human development and leadership being ooh, <laughs> so much the same mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, Jordan, you're next to my screen. So we're going to move to you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, hi, everyone. I am Jordan Harper. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm currently an assistant professor of higher education and student affairs at Morgan State University, uh, which is in Baltimore. And I'm really excited to uh, be here with everybody and just being part of the symposium, too. It's been a great experience so far. Um, so in what ways am I a leadership educator? Um, so, you know, in the most traditional sense, I did some practitioner work um, in the leadership development space. And I think while I was in that space, I often find, found myself asking questions that, you know, were a little bit more critical of some of the frameworks that we were using, um, some of the ways that we were framing leadership or, you know, the development of leaders. Um, so when I started my PhD program, I was like, I need to dig into this a little bit more. I gotta gotta get a little deeper. So um in that regard, I started to think about, you know, the critiques of some of the dominant frameworks and models that we were using in uh college student leadership development spaces. And, you know, obviously, you know, you start a PhD program and the sad part of it is like I 
distanced myself from being on the ground as a practitioner, but, you know, I kept my ears to the streets a little bit and um, just tried to continue working with other practitioners to make sure that they had uh, what they needed <clears throat> to, you know, think about and help develop um, student leadership capacities. I'm especially thinking about um, historically marginalized students and racially minoritized students and such. Um, so as much as I'm not like working directly with students now, I still see myself as a leadership educator, but more so now I'm just helping um, other practitioners and scholars uh, push and think about liberatory leadership. So uh, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, I, lo I love that. One of my one of my favorite things about our field is, is the ability to kind of move into different spaces within it, but still stay connected across. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like leadership educators in particular are just really great at kind of keeping their their feet in in lots of different things in different ways in the field. So uh, yeah. thank you for doing that and, and, and doing that for others. Mm -hmm. yeah. Esty. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Esti Hernandez. I use she and Ea pronouns, and I am an assistant professor of higher education leadership at National Lewis University in Chicago, but I'm um, talking with y'all by way of uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, um, as the program is an online EDD program primarily, and uh, intended for practitioners who work full-time, uh, to be able to matriculate and earn their doctorate and be able to, you know, create tables and, and pull up chairs and spaces that would not otherwise, they would not otherwise have access to. And I really love that work. And that is how I see myself as a leadership educator now. Um, I, much like Jordan, uh, and even to some extent what Amy shared, uh, came into leadership education in, you know, conventional ways as a practitioner in um, the at Florida State, where mm -hmm. I worked and earned my doctorate, I also taught in leadership studies at FSU, and um, so that's kind of how I, you know, earned my chops, so to speak. However, I, much like Jordan, work primarily with practitioners now and thinking about how we translate what we learn through coursework into practice as all of them are administrators, right? And they occupy spaces and positions where they can affect change. And so how might we be able to do that? Even with entry-level professionals, we all have influence in some way. And so how might we, you know, interrupt practices that don't serve us um, in, in, you know, micro ways that work us toward liberation, kind of like what Jordan shared. Um, mm -hmm. I also serve on the national board for my sorority, Capital Takai Sorority Incorporated. And um, there I'm able to also role model what that leadership looks like as we work to, um, as a Latina sorority, really consider the normative and dominant ways in which we've all learned leadership mm -hmm. and how we might practice that differently and role model that and kind of impress that upon our, particularly our collegiate sisters, but even with our alumni as well. Yeah. I think that's so important that we as leadership educators also think about the ways that we are practicing leadership. I, we can get so in this cycle of um, teaching the theory and the content and then forgetting that we also have influence in all kinds of spaces that we're in. And so how are we living that out? So I'm so glad that that is a part of kind of the, the role you're playing, helping people realize that and, and build that capacity in themselves in addition to maybe the work they do um, in kind of teaching others and developing others as leaders. Yeah. Ah, y'all are amazing.
Yeah, All right. Let's... So we have invited you here because um, we're, we're, I guess we're pulling like the brain power of the three of you together for symposium to talk about this idea of co-construction um, mm -hmm. as like a design element and as a practice in leadership education. Um, and so whoever wants to kind of take this on, or maybe you all have a little, a, a couple thoughts about it, but what do we even mean by co-construction and why is that important for leadership educators to understand and practice in their work? Um, I can kick us off here. I think whenever I think about co-construction, I often think about um, it's the act of like designing with, not for individuals. Um, so sometimes what happens is we get really caught up in the genius of this kind of like of experts, right? Like we all put our heads together and we think we know it all. We know how it should go. And then, you know, we may give a service program, whatever the case may be. And then it just kind of flies over the heads of the people that we're trying to educate um, or they just don't see it as relevant, whatever the case may be. So this idea of co-construction really allows everybody to kind of be on this equal playing field in some capacity. Um, and we can all, whether you're a participant, whether you're in front of the room, whatever the case may be, we can all put our heads together. Um, and ensure that, you know, we build and we build a, a program, initiative, whatever the case may be, learning experience um, together and that everyone's voice is heard and that we are thinking about the collective uh, wants, needs and desires of uh, everyone in the room in order to uh, get us to where we want to go. So that's how I tend to think about co-construction. Um, it's this watching out for power dynamics it's this you know making sure that um everyone is heard and not just a few people in the room yeah it's funny i love that you were sharing that because when i think about it i go back to my master's program when i took a college teaching class mm. and i remember reading a book um, by parker palmer at the time and he had a diagram in the book and it was like a traditional um, kind of classroom setup with the chairs and rows and the you know teacher at the front kind of idea and the teacher was like the knower right that was the mm -hmm. kind of the illustration that the content knowledge was there right mm -hmm. and then there was another picture next to it and it was a circle of all of the participants in the course and there was no teacher and in the middle was the content right and the knowledge mm -hmm. everyone was a knower right around the circle and I, I that image will forever be like you know, born my head because I, that's how I set up my classroom now. Like I try mm -hmm. always to sit in a circle, you know, because while we might have some more knowledge because we have read a few things or have a few more articles under our belts, we don't necessarily have all of the lived experiences and the other disciplinary knowledge that folks are bringing into the room when we teach. And so I think it's so important to think about that. And I also, you know, believe similar to you, Jordan, that it it's about giving agency and sharing the power um, because I, I mean, I just have never, I've tried to never enter a space where I'm like, I'm the expert, right? <laughs> I'm, mm -hmm. I'm always able to learn from every interaction that I have. And I think that's really at the heart of co-construction too, is the instructor being able to recognize that or the facilitator, or the leader being able to recognize that, you know, you don't know everything. Yeah. And I, I think that, that that process as as a leader, like a positional leader, 
in the classroom or in, as a facilitator requires a radical humility um, mm -hmm. and introspection. And I don't think, I, I think increasingly we're talking more about that in leadership ed and in social justice work, but um, you know, it's one thing to see the world and what's going on and it's quite another to think about our role in it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I love Amy that you talked about like how I never enter a space where I'm presuming that I'm the expert. Um, I think about that all the time as a first generation high school graduate, college graduate doctor, um, where my parents don't have very much formal education. Um, most of my family members don't have a lot of formal education. Uh, most of my family members don't speak English, right? So I, I think about that a lot and just about how I have been made different on account of all the degrees that I have earned and amassed, but I am, and 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 having humility in that, but also um, not being presumptuous and knowing better. And, and also like affirming my parents and like their, their you know, <clears throat> their, um, community folk, forms of knowledge that my mom kind of underplays all the time and, and legitimizing it. And uh, so I think that that's also, it's very like community driven as well. Um, I, I think it's something that has been learned in family spaces, at least for me. And, and I think for those of us who do identify along different um, minoritized communities, um, I wonder if that's something that we can lean on an asset that we can lean on, like in what ways do we um, engage with communities that we're from? And even though we might have power in terms of education and like social class uh, that we've earned, how might we remember um, the communities from which we have made us, right? And how might we replicate that same kind of dynamic in the spaces that we now occupy as leadership educators? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll even say too that like, um, when it comes to co-construction, like are the systems that we are all a part of that we're trying to dismantle whatever the case that our universities colleges and universities are active participants in like they just do not prioritize co-construction and right. it's just not at the heart of it and the so whenever we whenever i think about the word co-construction um similar to usd is like i'm thinking about how co-construction is an indigenous practice it is a black feminist practice it is like mm -hmm. literally um, such a liberatory and radical practice where we are literally challenging the very pervasive and dominant systems um, that our social world is built on. Um, and we are being deliberate and we're saying, oh no, like we're going to kind of watch out for this, you know, how, how we may be upholding um, things like white supremacy or um, you know, technocratic paradigms, whatever the case may be. And we're actually going to bring everyone in. And we're going to share this responsibility. We're going to share the power. We're going to create spaces and pockets for agency. Um, and that's just like so important. And like when you when you look at it from the lens of like systems, um, I get really excited when I think about co-construction because it's like, oh, we're actually, you know, defying some systems that uh, are very much apparent in our society and that have gotten us to certain places that we are now. So um, yeah, the, the act of co-construction is just so exciting. Yeah, it's making me think about co-construction as an act of resistance, to your mm -hmm. point, right? That, um, And what's so interesting to me as I hear you all talk about 
how you connect to that term and why it's important in leadership education. I also think how, um, you know, at its, in, in our, in our best, and when we show up best as leadership educators, a lot of us are, are kind of doing some of that already and may not even really identify it right as co-construction or think about it as liberatory. But one of my favorite things about our field is, is how much of the work, especially the more modern work, I think in the field is grounded in that idea of, um, valuing experience and storytelling and about, um, you know, kind of shared, shared design in the classroom and discussion-based kind of conversations and all that, when you think about mapping that, right, it does map onto this idea of co-construction, even if maybe we haven't thought about our work as being that previously, Mm -hmm. um, which is why I think it's just such an important thing for us to recognize in our work. Yeah, I think too, um, I work primarily with undergraduates in in my role and my teaching responsibilities, thinking about capacity and efficacy building, especially coming out of the pandemic, right, and these students are in person Mm -hmm. and thinking of the ways of that. I've been thinking a lot about how we get student leaders to think about generative change and not just in their organizations or in their small pockets, but also thinking about this idea of co-construction. If we're modeling that in the classroom, what that means for their spaces, right? Because when they're coming to their classes and their lectures and they're seeing one professor at the front talking to everybody else, when they become president of their student organization or they're the manager at their workplace, that's how they think leadership looks like. And when we're doing that in the classrooms in particular, in my space I'm in, um, I think about what that's modeling the way for them um, and thinking about this idea of this co-construction, right? Even um, being in spaces where the classroom is a circle, right? Or I think about, I always teach sitting down um, in that circle space mm-hmm. because I don't need to be standing for them. Um, and if there's ever time that they need me to do that, I'm happy to oblige, but really want to be a part of the community of practice. And um, yeah, even uh, the small leadership concept, right? Of modeling the way, like we, we forget sure. how important that is for students to physically just see people that they see having power, um, kind of giving it back to them. Yeah, I, I also have been thinking about this as of late, just kind of like predominantly teaching online mm-hmm. and how even with my teaching philosophy as kind of like this co-constructive space and all that type of stuff, it is like equally modeling co-construction, but also like it's pushing against co-construction in some way. Like it's mm-hmm. just this weird kind of, tension because I think about like okay like you know you open up a zoom screen and yeah I'm not in the front of the classroom right Mm -hmm. so like everyone's there and they can all feel like we're we're existing in the shared space and I'm not at a lectern or I'm not at the front of the classroom but at the same time like I have to be very intentional about co-construction in online spaces so and it's it's hard to do that because you know zoom and online world is it's just hard it's it's extremely hard and um you know i've been thinking about and this is very focused into the classroom discussion but like i have been thinking about ways of like you know leaving weeks open on a syllabus for us to just be like okay like what do we want to dive into this week um or even just like allowing students to have like their own space and time to like discuss certain things like i and right now teaching a class and there's only six people in it. And I'm like, okay, like I'm going to put you all in a breakout room. And like, I don't have to be there at all because I think sometimes what happens is they would feel a little bit of pressure to perform a little bit. So I'm like, okay, let me put you all in a breakout room and let you all kind of discuss. And then we can all come back and have a shared discussion about whatever it is you all talked about in your space. So it is, 
I'm just thinking about like the digital world, right? You know, and how people are still doing leadership programs online. They may be mm -hmm. teaching leadership um, classes online and how still we have to be even more intentional because we don't have the luxury of putting the chairs in a circle or anything like that. So we have to be very intentional in the ways that we are um, embodying co-construction in online spaces. I think that note, Jordan, is is a really good lead-in for our next question for you all. And really thinking about, um, I know that LES will really explore a lot of this more in depth, but I guess giving folks a teaser of what um, they can expect around just doing this in practice, right? So what for you all has been your own experiences using co-construction approaches in your research teaching and practice? I know we've talked a little about teaching, um, but particularly with leadership learning and development of college students and really focusing on like what is easy for you, what feels like second nature, what or over time has become um, more accessible and what has been most challenging, um, especially in today's day and age. I'll just, I'll start and I'll just say, you know, I think for anyone who's thinking about doing this, it it takes a little while to get used to it. Mm -hmm. um, I think initially you, first time you're teaching, first time you're facilitating or leading a group, like you, you want to maintain some semblance of control <laughs> because you have a plan and you, you know, you really want to um, make sure the outcomes are met and all of those pieces. Right. Um, and after a little while you get, I think you get more used to it. And I, I have found it easier over time to let go. And, you know, as Jordan has said, you know, do creative things like leave an open day on my syllabus that is like for the students to name the topic. And then, you know, I will figure out how to kind of guide them in that regard. Um, I have often done um, some ungrading kinds of concepts, right, where students grade themselves. I've done it with an entire course of college seniors. I've done it in graduate school for different assignments, right? Where they kind of set their own expectations for an assignment. They have a lot of choice within that assignment and then they're able to kind of grade themselves. Afterwards, um, I really do feel like grades uh, are problematic at times um, to this idea of co-construction. So just trying to get creative around that. Um, and then I think, you know, just the facilitation style that you kind of utilize in the classroom can be a form of co-construction. Um, I tend to bring in questions, um, discussion questions that kind of guide, but not kind of impose, you know, my thinking on the students, kind of let them start. Um, and then I have kind of in my back pocket, you know, ideas that I may want them to take away, but yeah. oftentimes they get there on their own. So they don't need me to be the one. And I actually think it's a richer learning environment when they are creating that knowledge on their own. Uh, and then I can just kind of add and sprinkle in, you know, ideas um, to kind of help and, and validate uh, a lot of what they're saying. Um, you know, I just this week um, did an activity in class that there was an assignment that we, I hadn't created the assignment fully yet. And I said, you know, I want you to do this activity, which is kind of going to lead into this assignment. And depending on how you do this activity, will help me decide and help us all decide together what the assignment's gonna look like. Um, and just that kind of, I don't know, approach allows them to be guides in their own learning journey. And I find that to be incredibly powerful and useful, you know, in the classroom. 
can just echo real fast. I um I had the pleasure of taking the senior capstone class that Dr. Barnes was talking about. Um, and it was this was giving yourself this A and having to hold yourself accountable to the standards that you set early in the semester when you're green eyed and bushy tailed and nothing's happened yet, right? <laughs> and then you get to the end of the semester, and you're like, did I do what I said I was going to do? Um, and uphold this contract. But I think to do it with an instructor, I think a lot of it was undergirded by a classroom built on respect, right? For our peers' learning, for our learning, and for um Dr. Barnes and our TA's time. Um, and I think that undergirding when you get to the end of the semester was like, oh, this is like, I'm going to be honest about what I performed and what I did. But even thinking now in my own career, I've adapted that practice that during COVID with my students, I had them always give their own grade for their engagement. So I wrote a paragraph and we talked in class about, you know, you know what you had to give this semester. I can't evaluate what your level of capacity and efficacy was to engage with this course and the material and the ways that you learn. So tell me what grade out of the 11 and seeing being in the space with me, you think you've earned. And oftentimes they're harsher on themselves than I would have been. And we get to have a good conversation mm-hmm. around you know, what, why did you think that? And then now as a professional in my life, thinking of even like performance evaluations I've had to do for myself, it's such a good skill to build up that will translate beyond the classroom as well, being able to advocate for your own work and what you're performing and all of that as well has been just a really, a, a very generative and um, has evolved over time, but been a great skill to have beyond the classroom. Uh, Brittany, just as an aside, have you, have you found that, um, in those self-evaluations that you do with students? Because I um, used to do those a lot when I taught undergrads and when I taught in person uh, for doctoral classes. Um, have you found that the self-evaluations have been gendered in many ways? Yes, over the em- years immensely. And yeah. I have to acknowledge that I primarily did it in a gender and leadership course. So we were, and so you'd think mm-hmm. that would take away some of that because we're talking all semester about gendered concepts, but it was a lot of the women, particularly um, in the course had a really hard time not having to give me- So I told them the the written up part said, you can either give me a number or you can give me a number and explanation. Like if they wanted to say, you know, if they, pro- usually I thought it was me if they scored themselves higher than they thought I might have of why they thought that was an appropriate grade. But it was typically women giving them lower selves, lower mm-hmm. scores and quantifying every point of mm-hmm. why they thought they earned that. Or yep. they would name their peers in there. Be like, oh, I didn't come up or show up as as prominently as this person in the class. Or, you know, I missed one day, so I should get lose two points of like the 10. I'm like, it's not an equivalent right. number. But they were, they were writing paragraphs and paragraphs, especially my women of color in the class. Um, I saw it particularly most with um, as well. So that's something that I I noticed. Um, just echo, like retweet everything that you just yeah ex or whatever we're calling it. <laughs> um, but um, and so I think that that's probably the hardest part. And one, I was asking the question because I was genuinely curious. Yeah. But also, I, I think that the hardest part about this co-creating is the unlearning. Kind of going back to yes. uh, mm-hmm. what Amy and Jordan have have been sharing. Because like you even said, like even in a gender and leadership class, students mm-hmm. were still kind of pra- like practicing these old ways of, of doing things. And yeah. so I think embodying what this looks like is really hard, which is why I talked about how important it is to be radically humble and mm-hmm. open and to what this looks like, because it's hard. It's hard to mm-hmm. practice this in an online learning environment. It's hard to practice this um, when you've only been taught to teach in a particular way, like echoing what, what Amy was sharing too. So it's, it's hard, right? And mm-hmm. so it, it really, it has to be embodied. And 
And so that I think that's the hardest thing. It's easy to learn like, oh, yeah, like gender dynamics and leadership, duh. But it's like, oh, but mm-hmm. I'm perpetuating this in my own practice in this class, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that that's the hardest piece is the, the letting go our, ourselves and being really critically introspective about that. I have like two points to kind of jump mm-hmm. off of what you all have been sharing so far. I think like what's even more difficult is when we are trying to model co-construction in our respective spaces, but then students go somewhere else and that's not the norm. Mm-hmm. So we're like asking students to like show up differently in our courses, but then the minute that they walk out of our doors or yeah. exit our Zoom rooms or whatever the case may be, then it's like, okay, well now I got to kind of go back to my traditional status quo self and so-and-so's like class program whatever because they are adopting more traditional again status quo notions of learning or whatever the case may be um so i kind of put myself in like put myself in the shoes of like some of the students that i work with and i'm like okay like i know that i'm doing this in my class but then like they go somewhere else and it's just like completely different and then what happens is like then they come back to me and they're like but like I appreciate what you're doing, but also like I have to act this way in so-and-so's mm-hmm. class or whatever the case may be. Um, so it's it's very difficult because we're asking them to step in and out of these kind of co-constructive spaces. And it's, you know, it's not consistent. Like it, we haven't gotten to the point yet where it's like this brand new systemic thing that we are kind of creating where it's like, okay, this can be the norm, this is the norm. Um, so I wanted to add that to the conversation, but then I also wanted to say that what's so important about, um, co-construction is just like this element of flexibility. So like we have to loosen up our grips on certain things. Um, again, kind of using the example of like how I'm teaching this semester, um, you know, a couple of, or maybe a month ago at this point, like Morgan State had a shooting and, I was like, oh gosh, like, you know, I can't walk into my class now and sit here and talk about whatever was on the syllabus for the week. Um, And just like allowing students the space to process emotions while also being clear that like, hey, like I know I'm not like a licensed professional in this space. So there's only but certain certain things that I can do. Um, But I remember in my assessment and evaluation class, I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to put you out, put you in the breakout room and I want you all to discuss what it is you want to discuss. I said, we've gone through a lot. Like you can talk about kind of what's going on on campus. You can talk about whatever we were talking about in the week, which I think was like qualitative approaches to assessment and evaluation. You can talk about a mix, whatever the case may be. And I let them be in their space for 25 minutes. They came back and they were like, we were just processing our emotions about like what happened on campus. And what was so interesting is, um, and this is, this is the beauty of co-construction, right? Like I was trusting that they were going to, you know, do what they needed to do in that space without any script for me. And then they also trusted me that, you know, you know, he's going to allow us to do what we need to do. Like, he's not going to feel away if we didn't discuss the readings or whatever the case may be. And somehow, magically, 
the conversation like went into not only a processing of emotions, but then like a kind of spring into action, right? Like, so like, what can we do in this class or what can we do with this group of people here to think about like what canvases need to do to address like gun violence or whatever the case may be. So it's like this very like trusting thing that was happening where, um, you know, because I loosened the grip a little bit and I allowed for that flexibility and for conversations to go wherever they wanted to go, um, students felt like, you know, they could talk about what they wanted to talk about and then organically something beautiful emerged from that. So I just think like so much of co-construction is about that loosening of the grip and being flexible. And um, I think we have to allow ourselves to be surprised and even unsettled about like what emerges when we allow co-construction and, you know, flexibility to take over a space because you never know what can what could happen from it. So um, I just think that flexibility aspect is so important. Yeah, it makes me think of too, Jordan, about, um, gosh, the the construct of time and how we put boundaries around things that don't necessarily, like we make up those boundaries, right? So in your example, even that's one, one class session where maybe you had something else planned, but the, the moment demanded something else, you were flexible enough. The group was flexible enough to be able to lean into that and spend time doing something else that was needed. And at the end of the day, like, did you check off what you had planned to for that day in class? No, but is that experience going to help those students grow and build and right. respect you more, respect one another more, that is going to pay off in ways mm -hmm. in, in the rest of your time in the class, right? It's going to pay off the next time they're in a, in an environment where a, a quote authority figure is kind of giving them back some of the power. They kind of know that they can, they have efficacy to be able to like kind of engage in that space in a way that feels a little more confident, right? Like that's a long game, right? That's a, that's a boundary of time that's different than just like, oh, I was supposed to get these things done in this period of time and we didn't really do that. Um, and I think letting go of that, even in, from our own perspectives as whether it's a, a classroom teacher or a facilitator of a program or an advisor of a student org, right? Remembering that that those kinds of constructs in a lot of ways are made up and there are other ways to be um, is something that I know I have to practice over and over again, really intentionally, yeah. right? Because that that uh, socialization around like time and checklists and measurement is pretty strong. Um, and so it takes really intentional practice to to let go of that. I think Mel building off that point and I think adding on to Jordan's I think it's it's not just like a loosening of the reins or being willing to adapt because I think that's certainly part of it but yeah. I think as I, I learned from the three of you all and hear you talk it's coming from a place of deep care and radical love right in co-construction mm -hmm. right? right like this doesn't happen if you all aren't the leadership educators that you are that are coming a framework of human development and care and showing that and I think the beauty of when this goes the way we want it to, right, is that all that ends up connecting back to the course anyway, right? Even the right, moment you right. take for those students have the 25 minutes to process, then you say like, when you're a leader and you have followers and they go through something in crisis, how are you going to show up for them, right? Like, mm -hmm. how are you doing this work in a way that is supporting your followers, right, or supporting your collective community, to do that. And I think that's the beautiful part about leadership education is that we can be adaptable, right? Or loosen our reins or adapt our lesson plans for more formal terms, but it's that you have care and compassion in ways that then end up translating back to the content anyway. Thinking of Amy's diagram from Paul Kaprama, right? Of the contents in the middle, but also like yeah. life is in the middle. Like we're learning from life mm -hmm. as it's happening to us and with us and as a part of us. Um, and thinking that's the beauty of these courses is that 
everything's a case study at the right time, right? And then can be back um, to the content in those ways too. And that you all have to have that deep love because thinking of Amy, see your capstone class, create an hour for every single student to have a one-on-one at the end of it, to do that giving the LCA, right? They weren't submitting mm-hmm. a random piece of paper that said like, think I got an A, um, but having a deep critical conversation around what it means to show up in spaces. How did you develop? What can you still be working on beyond your time in this class? And having those deep critical conversations that again are coming from places of care and love that are then modeling for educators in the future too. Well, and I'll just build on what you're saying, Brittany, because I believe that create, you know, having students feel like they are human beings and that they are loved in your class actually allows them to engage deeper and learn more, mm-hmm. right? Like I would argue that taking that 25 minutes or or whatever it is, the additional time, I mean, I do check-ins every week with my students mm-hmm. and use 15 yeah. to 20 minutes of my class time for that, right? Um, and I find that extremely valuable because I think that if I lectured at them all day, every day, they would take away less than what it, it you know, the time that I take away for check-ins the knowledge and the experience that they're having in the classroom is so much more rich and they're then able to learn so much more just because they feel invested. Right. And that, that care goes a long way, not just the long game, like Melissa said, but also just in that semester, right. Their takeaways are so much deeper as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts, friends, about ways that co-construction shows up in your practice or in your um, engagement with colleagues or your research? I want to, there's such a good conversation here happening about like uh, feedback and, um, you know, having people reflect on progress that they've made and things like that. And I just want to offer up like another approach um something that I just started playing around with this semester in my classes is the kind of ungrading approach and in this ungrading approach um I actually requires my students to do a like post assignment reflection so instead of asking them to grade themselves I actually just give them I think like seven or so questions and they have to kind of answer two And I basically tell them, I say, I'm not going to look at your paper. I'm not going to like even download it onto my computer until I get your post assignment reflection. And I actually read the post assignment reflection first. And I use that as a lens or a guide into giving them feedback. So I always say like in the, I guess in the, sense of like if something happens where you feel that you didn't do your best right whatever the case may be just say like you had a lot of life stuff going on um you just feel like it just wasn't your best work I always say like put that in your post assignment reflection because what will happen is I'll look at that and I'll be like okay so-and-so feels like this wasn't their best work well, now let me kind of go into it with that frame of like you know they've given me kind of context I'm not asking them to like spill out their lives to me, but, um, you know, if they feel like there's something that I need to know before going in and reading it, um, that becomes helpful. And then more often than not, I'm like, you actually did a really good job here. <laughs> so it's like, don't even be, you know, um, you're, you're being hard on yourself a little bit. Um, but that post assignment reflection is so like interesting to me because I just, I'm like, I'm not looking at it until I get it. 
And then I can use that as a way of getting so that I'm not putting my own biases on it or my own um, ideas about, you know, where you should be at this point in the class or whatever the case may be. I'm thinking about you, like as a human being, your life outside of this class, um, how you feel like you're developing as a writer or someone who can um, ideate or put together arguments, whatever the case may be. And that has just been such an interesting practice for me. And it's something that I want to continue. Um, but just to connect it back to this co-construction, it's like when you ask students, for example, to do that, like, again, that trust starts opening up and they're like, okay, like, he's not trying to be punitive. He's not trying to just give me like a failing grade or a bad grade, whatever the case may be. But he actually cares about what's happening outside of this class and what I feel like I have already reflected on that I need to work on or whatever the case may be. And I just think that it's just been so great for this kind of co-constructive um, practice that I'm trying to implement in not only my classroom spaces, but just in any other space um, that I'm occupying. Because again, you want to make sure that everyone feels like they're a part and they have some type of agency and stay in reflection in the space. So um, I just want to offer that up um, in addition. Yeah, and I, that practice that you are just naming is transferable, especially to lots of different contexts, whether our, I, mean, I think about our listeners who are, um, you know, advising student groups or who are, you know, running workshop series or anything like that, right? This idea of engaging students in that kind of reflection about yeah. their engagement um, and how they're thinking about themselves and their own learning or their development in the process is something that we can do in lots of different contexts in our work. Yeah. Hey, I'm looking at time and I want to make sure we honor your time and our listeners time, but we do have two kind of quick questions for you all thinking leadership educators symposium. Um, they've got a couple weeks between when this comes out and when the symposium is, so especially if they're going or if they unfortunately can't attend, really wanting to think about for folks that are listening to this, they're excited about this idea of co-construction and they want to work on their own practice. What is maybe one reading video podcast other than this one um, that you think our listeners should check out related to this topic or maybe things that you have coming out soon um, that you can think that would make change people's minds or practice on on co-construction. Well, I shared this. Oh, go ahead, SD. You go. <laughs> really, I'm like I don't have a, a book or, or a reading necessarily, but I want to invite um, listeners to maybe journal or reflect on mm -hmm. things that have come up for them as they've been listening with regard to what you know, incremental practices they could employ, right? Even just starting tomorrow, right? Like what could I do differently or in what ways could I challenge myself? What are some new mantras that I could um, take on as I embark on this work, right? Even if you won't be joining us for the symposium, like what are some of the takeaways that you've had from just listening to this conversation and and that, that might serve you in that capacity? I love that. Mm -hmm. I have already mentioned this to Jordan and Esty in a prior meeting, but um, this semester I'm using um, Adrienne Marie Brown's work on emergent strategy and holding mm -hmm. change. And um, I have just found that to be all very aligned with a lot of what we're talking about today. Um, I think to your point, Jordan, about sort of black feminist approaches to uh, facilitation and leadership. Um, she's definitely bringing that and she has many other Black feminist authors that she brings into the conversation in her books. And I think there's a lot um, to be learned from them. And 
She also, if you're not a book person, she's got a lot of podcasts. Uh, mm-hmm. So the one that I assigned to my students was the Leader Morphosis podcast. She was mm-hmm. on that podcast back in May um, and ta- talked a lot about the concepts from both those books, the Emergent Strategy and the Holding Change. Yeah, and along those same uh, sentiments, I would recommend um, a book by um, Mariam Kaba titled We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that it is a beautiful book. It's kind of like a collection of essays, um, and it really centers transformative justice, kind of being in community with others and struggling alongside others. Um, the importance of organizing. And I guess like the through line um, through all these essays and just, you know, the book in general is um, an importance around like abolitionist praxis. So, you know, sometimes abolition gets a bad rep and it's just kind of about tearing down, but she's very clear that abolition is about um, dismantling oppressive systems, but also building new ones in their uh, presence. Um, so she talks a lot about that throughout the book, and she's in conversation with a lot of different people. Um, so that is, again, from um, a Black woman, and she is um, really at the center of a lot of the discussions now um, that's, that are happening around the country about transformative justice. So I would definitely recommend that. I think it's such a good point, too, with these three recommendations, and especially Essie, your point is that um, no one's call to action today is like to 180, like flip their <laughs> classrooms yeah. and teachings tomorrow, yeah. right by your next class session. Um, but it is these incremental changes that you can make and reflect on and continue to adapt um, beyond, too. Well, before we head out, I would love for our listeners to know what you're excited about for this coming Leadership Educators Symposium. And maybe entice entice our friends to um, join us in Tampa. So so for each of you, what is what are you most excited about for symposium? Why should people join us? Um, I am have not been to one. And <laughs> I am really excited about how it's been communicated as like a uh, a very intense like unlike any other conference where you attend sessions and um it and I like going to conferences, right? But you're kind of passively learning by listening. And, and you know, there are some opportunities to engage in in, in dialogue, right? But by, by and large, that structure is not going to be present at the symposium. It is going to be, you know, intensely interactive, going to require a lot from participants, a lot of work, a lot of that co-construction that we intend to model in that space. That's really exciting to me. Yes, it's more work, but I think, and I think it'll be a transformative space. I think about how they're, we're being challenged right now with state governments trying to dictate, you know, what we teach and how we teach, especially around equity and DEI issues and how a lot of us probably need some space um, to process and talk and really grapple with some of the realities um, and how we can use our positions and our scopes of influence to try to um, push back and and really think about how we can center this conversation. And so I'm looking forward to being with people who care about these issues and want to make things better right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and similarly, I am really excited about um, 
the intimacy that I think the symposium is going to afford. So like us being able to uh, build kind of a trusted space and um, get to know each other, like, you know, beyond the kind of like regular conference, like over like passing each other in the hallways and things like that, or as sessions are going in and out. Um, but I'm just really excited about um, the intimacy aspect of it and um, just bringing together um, like a smaller group of individuals, not like thousands, um, but a smaller group of individuals to have some of these important conversations. Um, and I'm also looking forward to um, like sitting with ideas and like sitting with tensions and contradictions and complexity. I just think that that is so generative and unique um and you know we're not going to be sitting there kind of spewing off recommendations for how you can uh go back to your campus tomorrow and change the world um so i just think that you know spending this time and space together um to kind of sit with a little bit of that discomfort and um like amy said just kind of sitting with some of the very pressing contemporary issues that we're having um it's just going to be really exciting so you know bringing all of our minds together in a co-constructive way is, um, I just know it's gonna be a beautiful space. Thank you to the three of you for sharing and for giving of your time and talent. I'm so excited to spend more time with you at Symposium and hope that others listening will join us as well. Yeah, thank you all for joining us today too. And I think, um, yeah, getting folks excited for what there is to learn. And I, I do think, um, LES is going to be just a brilliant space to just bring folks together. And and again, I think even the way that we're all just on the podcast talking to each other about what this is and why it's so important is really cool that there will, um, the power dynamics is different in this conference and any other. So I think it's really wonderful for folks to have that buy-in to the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you all for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for having us. Wow. What a conversation, Mel. I know. Like I know. what a group of scholars y'all have pulled together for the Leadership Educator Symposium. I'm just got a lot to noodle on and think about this week. Yeah. I think what's been so neat um, for me to hear as they like kind of talk, even just in this episode is mm -hmm. just the, they're so connected on the themes about this work, but they all do it in very different ways. And yes with different backgrounds. I mean, obviously they're all in the classroom mostly now, but remember that all three of them have had robust practitioner careers and have done, you know, mm -hmm. this kind of, an, I guess, explored this idea of co-construction in their practice in a lot of different ways. And that's one of the things that um, is cool about symposium is that it really is a space for folks um, who are doing kind of leadership learning and development work, whether they're in a classroom or, you know, advising students or, um, running workshops or facilitating, like there's just a, so much of what we're going to talk about is transferable to a lot of different spaces and contexts, right? Yes. Uh, transferable context. that's, our, that's our focus for this yeah. season. Um, but I think that's, you know, I, I got it. As I listen to them talk about co-construction and what I know about the three of them and the way that even they, in their journey as scholars for symposium, the way that they are co-constructing the curriculum for that experience. I mean, that's one of the coolest things I think about symposium in addition to everything that they shared about it being kind of this like 
retreat style, like more intimate kind of mm-hmm. thought provoking transformative space for, for educators to be together. The, the curriculum changes for symposium every time we do it. And it's the yeah. scholars and the planning team that are really kind of generating it from scratch and designing mm-hmm. it around whatever the topic is. Right. So in addition to talking about co-construction, they are also like, we're going through this very co-constructed process to create the curriculum and Mm -hmm. they're leaving space in the curriculum for even participants of the symposium to kind of decide what we do at certain points. And uh, that's just really exciting for me. I totally nerd out about it. It feels like meta to me. It's like all different thinking about this idea of co-construction, not only how we talk about it, how we teach it, but also how we practice it. And even in the moment, how we engage in it. Um, I don't know, we don't get to, you don't, like they all said, right? You don't get to do that at a normal, like kind of like choose your own adventure conference experience. Yes. So. Yeah. When I think I just keep sitting with this idea of like, and I think it's because of the three of them and hearing the way they talk about it, but like co-construction as this act of love, like it's, a, it's, it's yes. an act of care. It's an act of love. It's an act of generosity of thinking of like, it takes but people, what the outside world sees is when you have a co-construction space, like, oh, it's just easier because they're just telling everybody to, like, choose your own adventure. But it really is significantly more work to build a community that this process works in because it doesn't work in most, right? Like, if you just show up in a random space and say, like, hey, uh, what do you want to do for class today? Yeah, yeah what, what do you want to do for class today? Like, that's not co-construction, right? This co-construction right. is really um, building community, creating intention, um, finding purpose, and even thinking about, again, having taken a class with Dr. Barnes where this was present in our classroom years ago, um, it is so much of it's from love and trust and care of each other and your own learning and your instructor's time and energy and the content, right? Like a respect for the content that you do want to still be engaged with it and not just every time someone tells you to go in a small group, you're like, okay, what are we all doing this weekend, right? You're like, what, what, okay. what's everyone? Wednesday look like or oh I hate right. that it's raining um because we know that happens in our small groups sometimes and it's really um again when this is done well it's really really transformative for students yeah I would also say too that it's it I think about my own journey in practicing co-construction and it's it's freeing for us as the you know quote educator or authority figure too right it releases you from this kind of pressure of being the expert it releases you of this pressure from mm-hmm. having to have all the answers and um, keep things like in some sort of a timeline, right? Like I, when you give, when, when you're empowering, right, a community of people to engage in learning in, in a way, in the way that we're talking about, I don't, I don't have to be the one that keeps the conversation going. I don't have to Mm -hmm. be the one that has an answer for everything. Um, And that is, that's freeing. And that's the notion of liberation, right? That idea of being free from those constructs that we invent as people, right? In order to control and to, and to Mm -hmm. turn and pivot. It's just, yeah, I just, I think in addition to obviously being so wonderful for student growth and and student development um, and for human, like for the humanizing, right? The learning experience. Mm-hmm. I think it's also doing the same thing for us as those of us who kind of are in those traditional educator roles in all these different spaces. Yeah. When thinking for my scholar practitioner and my scholar educator friends, like my best research questions or writing projects have come from notes I've jotted down when students have been having the power 
to share their interpretations of work or their lived experiences, yeah. applying content from the class, right? Even thinking of this piece I'm working on right now about trait-based theory um, is stemming from different things students have said to me over the years about trait-based theory and trait-based learning and leadership approaches of like challenges they've had or different ways they envision it. Or I just, when you let that space be what it is for folks that are engaging in writing and research and scholarship, it's just beautiful ways for this new ideation and ways for your brain to keep growing and being creative because you're not just saying they're reading the same seven books and listening to the same four podcasts or TED Talks or whatever it may be. Um, it's just this beautiful organic conversation. So much like our, I think how the way our podcast ran to peel back the curtain today was much of a co-constructed and how um, we all came together and thinking about, you know, we might've thrown a couple questions, but the direction ahead, it was certainly co-constructed in that realm too. I know. I just, yeah. Well, I appreciate cool. the, like the space certainly that our scholars created with us today. Yeah. And on that note, Melissa, what do people need to know to get themselves to Tampa yeah. so that they, they can keep learning with you all? Oh my gosh. Well, y'all leadership educators symposium, you, you'll hear our pretty outro at the end of our, of our episode today as well, but mm-hmm. symposium is December 13th through 15th at the university of Tampa. Um, and our topic obviously is about the <laughs> philosophy and practice of co-construction. Um, and so We essentially have a hard deadline. Registration is due by December 1st. If you want to join us, make sure that you sign up by December 1st. Um, But if you want to secure a hotel room in our Mm -hmm. discounted block, you're going to need to do that by November 21st. So that hotel date of November 21st is really what you're going to want to pay attention to. Another thing I want to name too that I think is important is that the our the you know cost for symposium and all that come with it is designed as truly a nonprofit experience. So, mm-hmm. so NCLP and our partners at Leadership, we make no money on this program. It is literally mm-hmm. like the cost is just what it costs for you to be there <laughs> to cover yeah. your food and, and the room rental and those kinds of things. Like we're not making money off of this. So it, we really, that's important for us because we want this to be as, as accessible for people as possible. That of course, if, if you've got some challenges related to financing to join us at Symposium, please send us a note. Um, you can find more information about Symposium at our website, nclp.umd.edu forward slash programs. And if you want to get a hold of us and chat about anything, you can contact NCLP at nclp at umd.edu. I check that email box all the time. I will be there. We'll get you the information that you need. Yeah. And go go hang with these brilliant folks at the University of Tampa in December. Also be a nice escape to some warmer weather and a beautiful campus. So um, and it's certain to be a really good couple of days engaging that way. Derek, you've also been before um, to the older duration of LES, but had that learning experience and cohort. And I know it was immensely valuable. So I'm excited for this year and I'm excited for our podcast afterward, debriefing the whole thing. So um, hopefully folks that went and went a little extra um, to noodle on, we can certainly talk about it after it happens too. Yeah. Cool. Thanks everyone. We'll be back in a couple weeks. So the new episode, um, continue to talk about leadership in context. And we're excited to chat with you all soon. Okay, have a good week. We also hope that you'll join the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs and our leadership educator friends from around the country and the world at this year's Leadership Educator Symposium, December 13th through 15th, 2023 at the University of Tampa. Our topic this year is liberatory learning and leadership education, exploring the philosophy and practice of co-construction. Find out more and register now at nclp.umd.edu forward slash programs.